Before we read today's text, I want to put it in the context of where we've been so far, or at least part of where we've been so far, picking up last week. Last week, we saw from Ephesians 5, verse 32, that marriage is a mystery. That is, God designed marriage a long time ago, and he gave it a meaning which was kept secret, or at least partly secret, for a long time. And then, through the Apostle Paul, in the book of Ephesians especially, and other places in the New Testament, its meaning was unfolded fully for us to see, and the meaning of the mystery of marriage was this. God designed marriage to be a parable, or a picture, or an image of Christ and the church. Marriage is meant to be a display to the world of how Christ and his bride, the church, relate to each other. So when God created man and woman the way we are, with our differences of manhood and womanhood, he did so so that we could fit into these complementary roles of Christ and the church in marriage and the other expressions of complementarity outside of marriage. And in this drama, man was meant to represent Christ in his servant leadership and love toward his wife, and the wife was meant to represent the bride of Christ in her free and glad response and support and honor of her husband's leadership. And we stressed, in fact, we've stressed for five weeks now, that these differences are not the result of sin. Manhood and womanhood did not come into existence because of sin. God made them. And the diversified, complementary roles of male and female, in marriage and in the church, were not the result of sin. They were the result of God's loving and wise ordinance. Before sin ever entered the world, God ordained and fitted Adam to be a loving caring, strong leader in relationship to Eve. And before sin ever entered the world, God ordained and fitted Eve to be one who supports and honors that leadership and helps carry it through according to her gifts. Both in the image of God, both equal in their godlike personhood, but different in their manhood and womanhood. The pattern was beautiful. They respected each other, they served each other, they complimented each other, they enjoyed each other. It could not be improved upon before sin. And then sin came. And what sin did was not create complementary and diverse roles, but ruin them. Sin took the kind of manhood and the kind of headship that God had ordained for Adam and just obliterated it, turned men either into passive do-nothings or into harsh and insensitive and uncaring, domineering people or something somewhere distorted in between. It took the intelligent, free affirmation of woman of that leadership and distorted it into some kind of manipulative forcefulness or some kind of domineering or something in between that's just all out of proportion to what he created. Sin ruined the harmony, the complementarity, 
the beauty and mutuality of what God had created. So when we get to the New Testament and you study the life of Jesus, and then you come to Ephesians 5 and other texts, what you find is what we saw last week, is not that Paul and the apostles and Jesus now attack what God created, namely diverse roles, and obliterate them and call for a unisex egalitarianism. Rather, what they try to do is recover what God made and redeem what God made. They try to get back to true biblical headship and true biblical submission. So let me rehearse the two definitions that I gave, which to me have been so helpful in getting a handle on what does it mean to be a husband and what does it mean to be a wife. First, a definition of headship. Headship, you remember, is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like Servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. A divine calling to husbands to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, provision, and protection in the home. What then would submission be? Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm that leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. To honor and affirm that leadership and to assist in carrying it through according to her gifts. When a husband leads like Christ and when a wife responds like the bride of Christ, the harmony, the mutuality is beautiful and satisfying and more fruitful than any other pattern of marriage that anybody could conceive today and put forward as an alternative to God's pattern. God is good. He loves us and He loves His glory. And therefore, by faith, we can say yes to the pattern that God has ordained And know that in saying yes to it, we will be most satisfied and he will be most glorified. Now the real test this morning of whether we have grasped the biblical essence of manhood and womanhood and whether we affirm it and regard it as beautiful is whether or not we are offended and surprised at the form this pattern takes in the church. Which is what we turn to now. And I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. If the New Testament roles of manhood and womanhood in the home are not rooted in selfish pride and not rooted in cultural expectation, but are rooted in God's beautiful order of creation, then we would expect 
something corresponding to this order to turn up in the family of God as well as the nuclear family of the home, which is exactly what we find in the New Testament happens. And I'm going to shorten down the text to several verses just to save time and read with you verses 11 to 14 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over men. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, in order to understand that text, we need to sit down at its feet. It's probably the most inflammatory text you could read in contemporary culture. And uh, my guess is that there's enough of this world spirit in every one of us to put us on a continuum somewhere from, hmm, can that really be to, if that's what it says, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. There are three things I think we need to ask about in order to understand the parameters of what's going on here. We need to ask, what is this silence being called for? We need to ask, what is this teaching being forbidden to women? We need to ask, what is this authority over men? that women are not to perform. And all of that will go into feeding what is this submissiveness referred to in verse 11. Let's take those one at a time. Let's talk first about silence from the text. Verse 11 says, Let a woman learn in silence. Now that word silence is used two other times in these nearby verses and they're very important to see. First, You can glance back up at verse 2 of this chapter. The Greek word behind this word silence, hesukia or hesukion in the adverb form, is used here just like it's used in verse 11. It says in verse 2, pray that, skipping now to the end, that we may lead a quiet, there's the word, a quiet and peaceable life, godly and respectful in every way. Now, I think the use of the word silent or quiet there gives us a tone and an extent of meaning that is very helpful in understanding what Paul is commending here. When you say you should live a quiet life, you don't mean an absolutely silent life. You don't mean you can't talk to your neighbor. You don't mean you can't talk to your husband the policeman in the corner. The word seems to carry the idea of being untroubled and serene and content. Maybe a better translation than silent would be quietness. That carries a little different connotation than the absoluteness that we tend to hear in the word silent. No words coming out of your mouth. The other use of the word is right at the end of verse 12, The reason this use of of silent or quiet is important is because of its opposite. It says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men. And then literally the text says, but 
the big strong but to be silent. So you put the two together. Not to have authority over men, but to be silent. They're alternatives. They're like opposites here. In other words, the quietness being commended here is the opposite of uh, using speech to exercise authority over men. Don't exercise authority over men, but instead remain in quietness in this regard. Now, can we generalize? What sort of quietness, then, does Paul have in mind here? And here's the first thing I would infer so far from the text. He has in mind a kind of quietness that respects and honors the leadership of the men God has called to oversee the church. Let me say that again. It's a kind of quietness that respects and honors the leadership of the men God has called to oversee the church. Verse 11 says, Have quietness in all submissiveness... And verse 12 says, quietness is the opposite of authority over men. So you see what, you can see the, the, the thrust or the point being made here. Quietness in submissiveness, quietness instead of authority. You can see those two things fitting very nicely together here. So the point is not so much, as we can see from verse 2, absolute wordlessness. The point is, being sure that the speech that comes out of your mouth does not compromise the authority being spoken of here, which we'll talk about in a moment, that is coming from men. Now, we're going to come back to that and unfold that in more practical terms in just a moment. Let's go to word number two. We were just focusing on the word quiet or silent there, and now we're focusing on the word teaching in verse 12. How extensive is this prohibition? I do not permit a woman to teach. Now, probably the one way to go about answering that question would be to look at places where Paul talks about women teaching or other writers in the New Testament talk about women teaching. So let's, let's look at two or three of those. For example, in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, uh, he speaks of the older women teaching the younger women in regard to their family affairs. And he says, they are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and children and so on. So there is a a call for women to teach what is good to the younger women. Another example is in 2 Timothy 3.14. We looked at this a couple of Sunday nights ago when we were talking about Christian education And here Paul is simply telling Timothy to remember from whom he learned the things of the Scripture. And the the book makes very plain who that is. Chapter 1, verse 5, it's Lois and it's Eunice, his grandmother and his mother. And Paul makes a great deal out of the character of these teachers. Remember from whom you learned these things, Timothy, because... The one from whom you learn them also has a bearing on whether you should stand by them. The third illustration is not from Paul, but from Luke. In Acts, it's Priscilla. In Acts 18.26, it says, 
When Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, they took him and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. So Aquila and Priscilla together take Apollos aside in private, so as not to embarrass him, I guess, and they together improve upon his doctrine. Now, in view of those three illustrations as uh, examples, I would say it's unlikely that every kind of teaching is being forbidden to women in chapter 2 of verse uh, verse 12 of 1 Timothy. Um, There are examples of younger women teaching, I mean, older women teaching younger women. There are examples of uh, teaching of children. There are examples of, of a wife and a husband together uh, correcting teaching, evidently, a confused, uninformed Apollos. Is it possible then to generalize, to say something as a kind of general principle that would help give guidance in a lot of different circumstances about, well, what, what is being forbidden, if anything, here, and what is being uh, permitted? When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Now, I think, rather than just filling up the word teach with anything you'd like it to mean or I'd like it to mean, we might do well to go to the next phrase, put the two together, and let the the tone and the parameters of the prohibition be determined by the pair. You see what I mean in the next phrase? I do not permit a woman to teach or to, to exercise authority over men. So I think this is the least we could say. And I think it's probably the point. Namely, uh, the kind of teaching that's being spoken of here that's being denied to women is some kind of teaching that relates to authority. Teach and exercise authority go together here. I don't allow them to teach or exercise authority. So at least one general thing I think we could say is this. Um... Paul forbids women to teach where that teaching is an exercise of authority over men. Paul forbids women to teach where that teaching is an exercise of authority over men. I think that's the the bottom line in this text. By putting those two things together, Paul seems to at least say that, and in view of the other teaching that's going on in the New Testament, we would probably be careful not to go too far beyond that in what we say. But now that, of course, raises this question. What do you mean authority? What is this authority? Can you say anything about this authority that would uh, help us understand what's going on here? So let's turn now to the third word. We've looked at silence, we've looked at teaching, and now we look, thirdly, at authority. Now, the key to unlocking what authority means here comes from a real interesting observation that I think you can all make if you look at it closely. When you read the rest of 1 Timothy and you study the qualification for elders in the next seven verses of chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, what you find is that elders in this book are given two main responsibilities in the church. Elders, by the way, now, for those of you who haven't been in on the series that we've been doing, is virtually synonymous in the New Testament with pastors, overseers, and bishops. 
Elders is used here and bishop at the beginning of the third chapter. And what we see is that they fundamentally have two responsibilities. One, and you can use different words for it, here are three, oversight, governance, or ruling. The other other responsibility is uh, teaching or instruction or preaching. The moral, I mean the, uh, the doctrinal guardians and the spiritual overseers. Those would be the two spheres where elders are given primary responsibility. Now let me show you this. You could see it in these verses 1 to 7, but the easiest place to see it is in chapter 5, verse 17 of 1 Timothy. Chapter 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders who... Rule, or you could say govern, or oversee well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So elders rule or govern, and they teach or preach. And maybe some of you remember back in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where it says the Holy Spirit has put you elders, into the church as overseers to pasture the flock of God. Oversight and feeding, governance and teaching are the two responsibilities given to the eldership in the church. Now, is it coincidental, I ask you, and I hardly see this pointed out anywhere in all the articles and books that I read on this issue, is it coincidental in 1 Timothy 2.12, that it is precisely these two things that are forbidden to the women in the church. I do not permit women to teach or to exercise authority over men, which I now say the easiest way to paraphrase that is this. Women ought not to be elders in the church. I think that's the, the, the clearest way to restate the parameters of 1 Timothy 2.12. The elders are charged with leadership and instruction. They're given the primary responsibility over the church like that. That's the summary of their job description. The leadership, governance, oversight, and the teaching, preaching, a doctrinal guardianship for the church. And so Paul says now to women... I don't permit women to do those two things. They ought not to be invested with those two responsibilities in the church. So what can we say about the authority that we're talking about now? Where it says, I don't allow a woman to have authority or exercise authority over men. I think we can say that it's the authority of the eldership. It's just that simple. The authority that God gives to the elders. Now, what is that, though? You see, one of the one of the confusing things on this in this whole debate is that there are just loads of people who don't believe in leadership in the church. They don't believe that there is any such thing as authority in the church, and that's the easiest solution to putting men and women on exactly the same roles. If you don't have any kind of authority or leadership structure in the church, then there's no problem with male and female. Just You solve the problem by ruling out the New Testament teaching about eldership. 
Well, you just can't do that if you believe, I don't think, in uh, the authority of Scripture. But you can say something revolutionary about the leadership of these elders, just the way Paul revolutionizes the leadership of husbands. For example, you go right back to Jesus in Luke 22:26, and he says, Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 8 and 2 Corinthians 13:10 says God has given me authority in the church not for tearing down or destroying but for building up. And thirdly, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 3 Peter says to the elders in the churches, do not domineer over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And you know that he's referring back to that time when he saw Jesus on his knees washing his feet and saying, as I have done unto you, so do to one another. Every elder in the church is called to then servant authority, servant leadership. So elder authority or elder leadership is servant leadership. And isn't it interesting then, and this is a remarkable thing, That's why teaching is at the heart of the exercise of this authority. Because you don't, in the church, you don't exercise authority by coercion or political maneuverings. You exercise authority by teaching and persuasion. And if an elder cannot show the church it's in this book, he has no authority. But derivatively, he is called to give guidance in the understanding of the book. And insofar as he can lead people into the book, he has then that derivative kind of leadership capacity in the church. Now, I think it would be helpful to just step back here and do for the eldership authority and uh, submission to it what we did for headship and submission last week, namely give definitions to them. And this might be the most helpful thing I could say this morning. So let me try to give a definition of authority as it's to be exercised by the elders and submission as it's to be exercised by everybody else, men and women. Here it is. Authority refers to the divine calling of spiritual gifted men. To take primary responsibility as elders for Christ-like servant leadership and teaching in the church. You see, I'm modeling that definition almost word for word on the headship of a husband in the home. And I think that's not accidental that the two go hand in hand. Authority refers to the divine calling of spiritual gifted men to take primary responsibility as elders for Christ-like servant leadership. And teaching in the church. Now, submission. Here's my definition of that. And I'm defining it uh, with, with verse 11 in view, where it says, Be silent in all submissiveness. Submission refers to the divine calling of the rest of the church, male and female, to honor and affirm the leadership of the elders and to be equipped by it for the hundreds and hundreds of various ministries available to men and women in the service of Christ. 
Let me say that again now. Submission refers to the divine calling of the rest of the church, both men and women, to honor and affirm the leadership of the elders and to be equipped by it for the hundreds, and I would not be using overstatement to say thousands of various ministries available to men and women in the service of Christ. And that last point may be very important because... For men and women who have a heart to minister, and every man and woman ought to have a heart to minister, to save souls, to heal broken lives, to resist the devil, to meet needs, there ought to be and there are fields of opportunity that are simply endless in their scope. Every man and woman in this room who wants to serve the living God, to lay your life out to meet the needs of as many people as you can, have 1,000 fields of opportunity endlessly open to you in this world. And God intends to equip and mobilize the saints, every saint, man and woman, through a company of spiritual men who take primary responsibility for leadership and teaching in the church. And I know that there are many voices today who claim to know a better way to equip and mobilize men and women for ministry than this way. But I commend to you this morning with all my heart the plain meaning of these verses, that manhood and womanhood mesh better in ministry when men take primary responsibility for leadership and teaching. Manhood and womanhood are better preserved, better nurtured, more fulfilled, more fruitful in this church order than any others. And I commend this to you for your belief and for your behavior because, number one, it's what these verses teach as the order of the church. God inspired these words, and God is good and has the best interests of you and this church and the world on his heart. And what we're going to do next week is pick this text up at verses 13 and 14 and then conclude this series next Sunday by broadening it out to ask what is it like to be male and female or man and woman just in society in general? What are the dynamics implied in texts like this for relating as single and married? Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we proclaim together now to you that you are not dead. You are alive. You have spoken and you have ordained that in the home husbands be Christ-like servant leaders and wives be willing, responsive partners who honor and affirm that leadership and carry it through with him into action. And we believe that in the household of God you have appointed that there be heads, servant leaders, the men whom you've called and anointed to bear the primary responsibility for the oversight, the governance, the leadership 
and for the doctrinal guardianship and teaching in the church in order that all the saints, men and women, might no longer watch television but pour their lives out for a dying world. In Jesus' name.